This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Well, good afternoon. Um, I'm going to be talking about acne and my own personal experience treating acne. Um, again, this is an industry-sponsored talk, so I will be talking about Epidua Forte, and this will be an on-label talk. So I'd like to thank Galderma for sponsoring me for being here, as well as sponsoring lunch for all of you. Um, so let's talk about acne. Now, I love doing what I do. I love dermatology. Um, I have a real passion for it. And I think all of us in the audience, too, you know, you love what you do, right? We're very fortunate to be in this specialty. Um, I know my non-dermatology medical colleagues often make fun of me, and I'm sure you guys hear it from your friends, too. They'll say, well, my friends will call me Mr. Pimple Popper, or they'll say, um, if treating skin conditions is really easy, if it's wet, dry it, or if it's dry, wet it. As we all know, it's much more difficult than that. And one of the reasons why I have such a passion for dermatology is I get to learn from my patients. And I really say, mean learn from my patients. I learn a lot from going to meetings, but our own clinical experience and getting that feedback from the patients is invaluable. And I know over years, I started to become a better listener to my patients. Um, I learn so much from them because I ask them how they're doing. I ask them what their treatment is like, things they like about it, things they don't like about it. And for acne, that's even more important because we, not, we have to know what irritates that patient, what they're using in conjunction with that product that helps, things that make it worse. And again, I'm constantly learning from this. And you know, I'd encourage you as you start your career or if you've been doing this for a long time, you know, always check in and really remind yourself of that because it's so important. Now, we can't talk about dermatology without talking about certain of our disease states that are so common, like psoriasis and rosacea. But a vast majority of my day is treating acne. And I would say at least half of my day during the week, during the weeks, averages out to be treating new as well as established acne patients. Now, I don't think I'm alone in that, because if you look at this slide, 40 to 50 million patients in the United States are suffering from acne. And if you really think of that in context of what the population of the United States is, population is about 300 to 320 million. So, you know, that's about 15%, maybe even 20% of the total population of the United States that suffers from acne. And so it behooves us to really get good at treating acne. And, um, you know, we treat lots of very complicated disease states, you know, lupus, connective tissue disorders, melanoma. But acne, for me, is just as serious as any of those. Because if you talk to that acne patient, they will tell you that it really affects their lives, as much as my psoriasis patients. And so, you know, Again, really, really pay attention to this patient base. You could build a whole practice just on treating acne. And if you do a good job at it, they'll tell their friends and they'll put on message boards. And um, I know for me, my practice really built by doing that. 
Now, if you're looking at the numbers here, you know, we think classically of acne being a teenage disease. Okay, so it says on the slide, 85% of teenagers are affected by acne. But in my practice, I think my number one acne patient on a daily basis are adult women, okay? I don't see a lot of teenagers, and I, I think the reason why is where my office is located. I'm downtown where all the offices are. So I see, you know, people 20 to 40 for the most part. And it always surprises me how much acne I see in my adult women. Now, if you look at this slide, an easy way to quote this to your patients, and this is what I do when I counsel my adult female acne patients, because they come in frustrated and they'll say, why am I still breaking out? I never had it when I was a teenager, 30 years old, and I'm still having to cover it up every day. So I like to tell them, because I think when you present these numbers, it really makes that patient feel a little bit better, was one in two in their 20s, adult women, one in three in their 30s, one in four in their 40s, and one in five in their 50s, as an average number. So, you know, even that patient in their 50s, one in five is still a lot of patients that still has acne. I just saw an Asian patient, 55-year-old this past week. I've been taking care of her for a long time, and, you know, we've tried little things along the way, and she still had persistent acne. Failed spironolactone, failed lots of different topicals, and she even said to me, she said, first time in my life, I never thought I'd have to go on Accutane for acne. Okay, and this is a 55-year-old, first time. So, you know, there's no age limit for acne. Now, with our men, they tend to peak a little earlier, teenagers, but it drops off much more quickly. So that's why we don't see a lot of men in their 40s and 50s with a lot of acne. Okay, but we do see a lot of women. Now, there are demographic shifts that are happening with acne. And, you know, looking at this slide, in, in general, for dermatologists, I think I probably see two to three women for every man. And this is mirrored with acne, too. Two times more women come to see us than men. Okay, and again, the women have a very specific story to tell when we're talking to them. Um, oftentimes, they're using multiple products. I usually have to take a detailed list. And they're usually using a cleanser, a toner, a scrub, maybe a clay mask or a charcoal mask. Um, they're using several topicals as well as covering their acne. So they might be doing five things, six things a day. So, you know, it's really important to address their needs specifically and really break that down and talk to them about what are you doing for your acne. And then I always ask permission. I say, okay, I understand you're using these things. Would it be okay if I have you maybe stop these things? I don't want you using your salicylic cleanser. I don't want you using your scrub. Well, we're going to get started. And if they say, well, I really love this, then I'll work around it. Okay, but so really talk to that patient and find out what they're doing. Now, again, our adult patients are different from our teenagers, so we have to approach them differently. If I see a teenager, I'm usually talking to the parents. Okay, but you also have to talk to the teenager and get them to buy into their treatment because if they're not buying into it and using their medications, they're not getting any result. And then I'm gonna kinda of get up on my own soapbox treating a lot of ethnic patients, I really feel like, unfortunately, and this isn't just for acne, this is for a lot of disease states in dermatology, even cosmetic, like fillers and Botox, how many studies do we really see that address our ethnic patients? 
What's the risk of post-inflammatory change? What's the risk of post-inflammatory erythema? Um, is it safe for darker skin types? Because if we like it or not, we have to get better at that, right? It's a huge passion of mine. Having grown up being a minority, it always bothers me when we're kind of thrown into a basket category, skin types four plus, and it's 10% of a study, okay? If we like it or not, 50% of the population by 2044 will be type four and darker. And our patients with acne that are type four skin types, what's the number one thing that we all hear them complain about with acne? Pigment. If we don't address the pigment, that patient won't feel like they're any better. Okay, so I'll see them back in a month and I'll say, wow, you look great. Your bumps are down and they'll say, I'm not any better because they're sitting there pigment. So, you know, we have to address pigment, and we, it would be nice to have studies to say, these products for acne help us with that patient's pigment. And I currently can't really say that. So, you know, again, listening to the patients, we kind of develop our own treatment protocol based on that. Now, again, this is common sense. I think we all know this. Acne is a significant condition, and it affects our patient's quality of life. Um, I routinely see patients in tears in my office come in, they say, I'm just so frustrated, I'm breaking out all the time, I don't feel like I can go out, um, and, you know, it really affects me personally because I really want to help that patient. I want to help them get better and feel better about themselves, okay, and there's a lot of power in what we do. You know, people can say, oh, it's just acne, but it isn't. It's, it, it's the most obvious thing, uh, one of the most obvious conditions we treat. You can't hide it. You can hide it with makeup, but even then, those female patients that are wearing makeup to conceal it, they think, well, I gotta plan ex an extra 30 minutes to get ready in order to make sure that I look presentable or I feel good about myself when I go out. And our, our male patients, they don't wanna wear makeup. So if we can get them better and sooner before they have long-term sequelae like scarring, you know, we're really doing something positive for that patient's life. We're changing their life. So let's talk about our moderate to severe patients. Okay, and those are our, obviously, our most pressing acne patients. You know, they all are, but the moderate to severe patients, when I see them, they obviously are the most affected by their disease. They look in the mirror and they see that they're very involved. Okay, so what are the considerations that we do? And we do this without even thinking about this kind of in a systematic way, like on this slide. You know, we're always balancing all of these competing factors to come up with a protocol for that patient, and we're doing it in minutes, okay? So we all have to pride ourselves on the fact that we can do this so quickly. Okay, so what's the safety profile? Usually with our acne patients, they have to go on systemic if they're moderate to severe. And immediately when I say moderate to severe, I think need to be on a systemic. So what are systemics? Oral antibiotics. But I know for me in my practice, I really limit oral antibiotic use as much as I can. Okay, or I think about doing low dose or some other option. Um, because you know we're worried about antibiotic resistance as well as our patients being concerned about antibiotic resistance. And you know, doxycycline's great, but it's one of our only medications that, will, that still works on MRSA. And once we start getting resistant 
MRSA to doxy in the general public, it's a real issue. Okay, alternative treatments and devices. So again, I like to talk to the patients and say, okay, what are you using at home? What do you like? You know, there are some studies that show tea tree oil can be helpful. Okay, so if that patient says, look, I like using tea tree oil cleanser on my face in the morning, or I'm using it twice a day, then I might say, well, let's incorporate that into your regimen if you feel strongly about it. So I might have them use that in the morning and use something prescription topical at night. So, you know, work with that patient. If they feel like cutting out gluten out of their diet works for them, again, I'm skeptical, but if they want to do that and it's not hurting them, you know, think about putting all these pieces together. Also, devices, if they have post-inflammatory erythema, I will often do a pulse dye laser on them, or you could do IPL to try to get that down quicker. Especially my brides, I'll have a, a bride coming in saying they're getting married in a month, and I have to do something to get them clearer before the wedding. Um, also, chemical peels, I would also think about as well. Um, patient preference. Okay, this is a big part of my consultations with my acne patients, is I really want to find out what their history is. When did this start? What, are they, what have they used in the past? Because I'll tell you, lose a patient very quickly if they were on tretinoin cream and they said it didn't work, and first thing you ask them is, well, let's put you on tretinoin cream. Okay, they don't want to do it because to them they've lost faith in that product. Um, so really take that detailed history, find out, and, you know, it also helps for me. I, I usually will ask my, my staff will ask the patients if they're coming in for a new acne visit, take a photo of your products, and if you can get um, a product ingredient list for Dr. Kwan, it helps him. So then I can go through that and do that all on the first visit. Um, so really ask what their preferences are. Um, authorization. If the medication's not getting covered, and if I see prior auths coming every single week to my staff and they're complaining about it, most likely I'm not gonna write that product anymore. Okay, so it's a time sink for the, patient, for the staff. Likewise, if I write for a medication and I see the patient back and they say, Dr. Kwan, I don't know why you gave me a medication that's $450, right? So then they start to lose a little faith in me. So really, you know, think about your patients, you know, help them as much as you can for approving their medications. And, um, and if they're having difficulty getting it covered, you may want to switch them to something else. So always have a backup plan, okay? Always have that backup plan. Efficacy, again, we have to look at efficacy for these moderate to severe patients. So if it's not working, or if it's taking 12 weeks before that patient starts to see some improvement, they're not gonna wanna continue to use it. So you, know, you always have to think of efficacy for that patient base. And then also sequelae and scars. If I see scarring from acne, I immediately am more aggressive. And remember, you can get acne scarring regardless of severity. You can see it in mild. I'll tell you, I had mild acne when I was a teenager. My parents knew nothing about going to a dermatologist. Okay, and I have some scarring from, in my temples, and I know for me, that's probably one of the reasons why I wear glasses all the time, is that it hides my acne scars. Okay, so really think about that. If you start to see that sequelae, post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, post-inflammatory erythema, that patient, they don't care that it's secondary, they all view it as one thing, one disease state, acne. So you gotta really think about, okay, you have a lot of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation, let's get you started, let's get things under control, and you are not gonna see improvement in that pigmentation unless we start you on some bleaching agents initially, okay? And you know, again, communicate that with the patient. They know that you're predicting what is going on and it really increases 
their trust in you as a provider. Now, looking at this, and if we look at this slide here, we all know Dapsone 5% and 7.5% as being um, Axone, right? And the 7.5 came out last year. And then clindamycin 1.2 and benzoyl peroxide 3.75, that is Onextin. Clindamycin and tretinoin, that is Ziana and Velton. Adapalene 0.1 and 2.5 benzyl peroxide is Epiduo, as we know. And then Forte is 0.3 Adapalene, 2.5% benzyl peroxide. But why are we putting this slide up? We're putting this slide up because if you look at the numbers that are highlighted along the bottom, right along here, most of these acne studies are done with moderate degrees of acne. The only one that has a significant number of severe patients is the Epidio Forte right here. Okay, why is that important? Well, I think we're, we're all trained that severe acne needs systemics, right? We don't really think of topicals as our foundation for treating acne. But in my office, I never just jump straight to an oral systemic without getting that patient on an acne topical. Okay, so that's our foundation is the acne topical. And that's what makes um, the Epidio Forte studies unique in that they enrolled so many severe patients. As I mentioned earlier, scarring is a big issue for these severe patients. Okay, that never goes away. And even if we do Fraxel on them or CO2 or microneedling, we're only gonna get about 50% improvement. Okay, and that's the number I quote patients as I treat them. So still, even after they spend good money to correct that acne scarring, they will still have it. So the better strategy is to treat them before the scarring happens. And what this is showing you, there's two different graphs here, so let's kind of go to the one on the right first. Okay, looking over here. Okay, scar frequency according to acne severity. So again, we all know our severe patient's scar. And don't forget, it's not just on the face, it's on the chest and the back. And also with that scarring, if they are Asian, African American, or Latino, they often have keloid scars from it too, right, which are disfiguring. So scarring is a really important aspect of acne that we don't really talk about too often. And so you can see across the board, Severe acne, about 75%, 80% of patients severe. But surprisingly, half of our moderate patients and about a third to a quarter of our mild patients develop permanent acne scarring. Okay, so again, it can happen across all severities. And then let's go to this side. So what this is showing you is delay in onset of treating the acne and the likelihood or the incidence of acne scarring. And I know this is very hard to read. It's even hard for me to read right here. But basically what this is showing you is you see the graphs going up. The orange is females. The black is males. And that's going up to about 36 months. So the longer we delay treating our acne patients, the more likely they're going to have acne scars. So when you see that patient, you know, think very strategically. And I always ask permission to the patients. I'll say, look, how bothered are you by your acne? I'd like to treat you aggressively. 
That means I might put you on a couple topicals or I might put you on some morals. Um, is that okay with you? And a lot of patients will say, well, I don't know if I want to do everything, but a lot of patients are so frustrated that they say, I don't care, let's just get it better. Okay, so really bring that up to the patient and try to treat it very early on. Again, continuing with the theme of acne scars, so you have two photos here. Obviously, the photo with clear skin would look better on a daily basis to most people. Okay, pretty girl, right? With the acne scarring, even though she's still the same person, that person's gonna feel very differently about their appearance. And what this is showing over here is people are asked to review photos with acne scarring and without acne scarring. And as you can see, attractiveness, confident, happy, healthy, all those positive traits are considered reduced because the patient has acne scarring. Things that we equate negatively, insecure, shy, successful, or actually insecure and shy, excuse me, are higher for the patients that have acne scars. And as you can see, success, something positive, again, is rated higher if you don't have acne scars. Okay, so, you know, very, very significant impact with these acne scars. Okay, we're gonna shift gears now. We're gonna talk about acne pathogenesis and the role that, our, that inflammation plays in acne. So I did my residency a long time ago, probably 20 something years ago. And this is what I was always taught. And if I looked at my old textbooks like Andrews, even Fitzpatrick, this would be the way that, we were, that I was trained on acne. Okay, so you have normal appearing skin, and then the earliest precursor for acne lesions is the microcomedone. It's microscopic, you can't see it. Okay, so when I'm instructing my acne patients to use their acne topicals, I tell them that's the reason why you use it on the entire face and don't spot treat. Because I don't know where this subclinical inflammation, this microcomedone is, and neither do they. Okay, then you're always chasing it around. I also use the analogy of brushing your teeth. You don't brush just the back teeth where the cavities happen. Brush the whole mouth, right? Because you want to be preventative. So remember that, microcom uh, that microcomedone is microscopic. You can't see it. But then that leads to open comedones, open comedones, closed comedones, and our typical acne lesions are our blackheads, our whiteheads, and if those whiteheads don't open up and come to the surface, classically we're taught that leads to inflammatory papules, pustules, cysts, nodules, and, um, and that kind of ends it. Okay, but the current thinking. A lot of research is being done with acne, and what has been found is there is subclinical inflammation in the skin in these acne patients. We don't know why. Okay, it's just like with rosacea. We have underlying inflammation in the skin that we think is causative. Again, we don't know why. So does that subclinical inflammation precede a microcomedone, or does it run parallel to a microcomedone? Again, we don't know, but we know that it's there, and it's significant. Okay, and the one thing that has always been left out of this classic approach to acne is scarring. 
okay, we know there's inflammation and scarring. Plus, you know, most of us have had a lot of experience treating rosacea. We see people with big, juicy, red bumps from rosacea. How often do we see scarring from that? Rarely, right? I can't even think of the last really inflamed rosacea patient that has scarring from it. Why is acne different? We think inflammation, okay? So there's some inflammation there that's breaking down collagen and leading to scars. Um, the other thing that's not listed on here, and again, more impactful for our darker skin types, is post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Why do they get post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation? Why do they get post-inflammatory erythema? And again, the analogy I use is rosacea. How often do we see, once the papule's gone, how, how, how many times do we really see that, in, that redness persist? Not very often. So acne is very different. Okay, so some people suggest that we should no longer refer to acne as inflammatory lesions and non-inflammatory lesions because we know inflammation is present in all of these lesion types. So, you know, our classic inflammatory lesions, but also in comedones, there's subclinical inflammation. And then persistent inflammatory dyschromias, also known as post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and erythema, we know there's inflammation there too, and that's what makes it different. Traditional view of acne pathogenesis, again, this is what I was taught when I was in residency. You have overproduction of sebum. P. acnes lives in the pore and changes that composition of sebum. Okay, also sebum is, is increased with increased androgens. Hyperkeratinization, which is clogging the pore or the pilosebaceous unit, which leads to inflammation and scarring. Okay, but the current thinking behind this is they're all interlinked, with inflammation being induced by these other components, hyperkeratinization, P. acnes, and sebum. Okay, so it's the, kind of the glue that holds everything together. Okay, so again, they're linked, they're dependent on each other. And so here's our four components again. And instead of it being more linear, it's more of a circle, okay? And so sebum production, and remember our only product that really works on sebum medication is Accutane. But we have sebum, and it says quantity and quality, okay? So most of our acne patients are oily, have more sebum. But we also know P. acnes lives in the pilosebaceous unit, and its food is sebum. So within the sebum, that P. acnes lives, and it changes and increases the free fatty acid percentage in sebum. Now, does that play a role in the inflammation? Possibly. Does the P. acnes? Possibly. But so that's why it says quantity and quality, because the quality of the sebum is different in our acne patients. Okay, P. acnes, and those two things start the inflammatory cascade to go. Okay, once that is activated, it leads to cytokine release. The cytokine release increases hyperkeratinization of the skin. 
also leads to leukocyte rec recruitment and increase in MMPs. And MMPs are things like collagenase, which damages collagen tissue. Okay, so maybe that's why we get scarring with that. And again, inflammation and scarring is our end result. This is highlighting where benzyl peroxide and our retinoids work in this cascade. And when I'm treating an acne patient, I always think about hitting at least two steps. You know, you've got to do something with P-acne, something with sebum, something with hyperkeratinization, or something with inflammation. And I like to hit at least two of those components to get effective treatment of that acne. Okay, and you know, there's so many different products that we can choose from. So, you know, that's where our clinical experience comes into play, as well as talking to our patients about what they like and what they don't like. Um, so, benzyl peroxide, we know, works on P. acnes. It's bactericidal. And the nice thing about benzyl peroxide is we do not develop antibiotic resistance to it because it's really not an antibiotic. Okay, as I mentioned, sebum, the only thing that works on sebum is Accutane, which we won't be talking about today. Um, retinoids are anti-inflammatory, and I always tell patients this because they'll come back all red and inflamed, and they think they're all, that they can't understand why am I putting, on, putting them on something that's inflaming their skin, but we know that it blocks multiple steps in the inflammatory cascade, as well as benzyl peroxide in green right there. Okay, so you can see that. Okay, so we're right here. Okay, retinoids work on inflammation cytokine release, downregulates that, downregulates leukocyte recruitment, and downregulates MMPs. And then going over here, hyperkeratinization, we know benzyl peroxide's comedolytic, and so are retinoids, but retinoids also normalize keratinization. Okay, so hopefully that means that their pores aren't getting clogged. The way I explain it to patients, especially if I'm using a product like EpiDuo, I say it's two in one, the benzyl peroxide works on the bacteria and opens your pores, the retinoid is anti-inflammatory and it keeps your pores open. Okay, and it makes sense to the patients when I kind of simplify it like that. And then inflammation and scarring, both the retinoid and benzyl peroxide are anti-inflammatory in that respect. Now, this is a confusing slide, so I'm going to try to simplify it. So this is the AAD guidelines for acne. And you know, it's a general guideline. It's something that we're all familiar with because we do this daily. You, know, you don't really have to memorize this. But basically, our mild acne patients, you can put them on benzoyl peroxide. You can put them on benzoyl peroxide plus an, a topical antibiotic. You can put them on a retinoid. You can put them on um, both, okay? When you get to moderate acne, what is added to that is maybe putting them on all of those and adding an oral antibiotic is a possibility or adding maybe spironolactone, which is listed on the bottom, or oral contraceptives. And then when you get to your severe patients, you pretty much need an oral. So basically, the thing that changes in this monomer is adding an oral agent. Okay, and again, we all do that from our own experience on a daily basis, so it's, this is not something that we necessarily memorize. But as you can see in red, there's a lot of red on there, and that means retinoids. So whenever I explain to a patient, we want you to be on a topical retinoid because it's one of our foundations for acne management. Okay, so when you're thinking about treating your acne patients, you always think about, well, is there a retinoid that I can use? Now, adapalene is a very different 
retinoid in that it's really not classically a retinoid. Its chemical structure is what we call naphthoic acid, and it's a naphthoic acid derivative. But it has retinoid properties. OK, so when you're looking at the, the slide one and two on here, what it's showing you is adapalene. It doesn't get absorbed systemically very well, but it develops in concentration within the skin. And it's very lipophilic, obviously meaning that it, it's attracted to lipid. So it's very specific for the pilosebaceous units. So it concentrates in that pilosebaceous unit. Why is that important? We know it's anti-inflammatory. So as you can see in that first slide, um, first diagram, excuse me, it's concentrating in there, working as an anti-inflammatory. But it's also working on the surface of the skin as a comedolytic agent. So it's going to help open that pore up. Plus, remember, it helps with maturation of the skin, so it's going to helpfully reduce hyperkeratinization from happening. And it's dose-dependent. So the, the graph over here, this is just showing you the, that it's dose-dependent. So that's 0.1 epiduo, uh, excuse me, 0.1 adapalene versus 0.3, and 0.3 is in orange, and 0.1 is in that blue-black color. And this is showing you investigator global assessment over 12 weeks, and at the end of 12 weeks, the dapalene 0.3, 22% of those patients were clear, almost clear, versus 15%. Um, and that was significant at that 12-week mark. So benzoyl peroxide is still one of my hallmark treatments for acne. I use it in washes, I use it in gels, I use it pretty much on the vast majority of my acne patients. The reason why is, number one, it's antibacterial. Okay, number two, it's comedolytic. Okay, those in itself are reasons enough. But it also has some anti-inflammatory properties. It's also very safe, it's very effective. The only negative with it is it stains and bleaches colored fabric and towels. Okay, so if you're putting patients on benzoyl peroxide, make sure you talk to them about the staining. Okay, white hand towels, always ask them what color their bed sheets are and they think I'm crazy when I ask them. Okay, but the reason why is if they have white sheets, they can use benzoyl peroxide at night, which I think is great if they can use it at night. Um, the dapalene molecule, like I said earlier, is not a classic retinoid, so it's not like tretinoin, it's not like tazerotene. So it's photostable. Okay, and we know UVA inactivates our classic retinoids, so that's why we have people use their retinoids at night, typically. The dapalene molecule, you can, they can use morning or night, which is great flexibility for the patient. Plus, we know when you mix a classic retinoid like tretinoin with benzyl peroxide, it breaks the um, tretinoin down, whereas the adapalene molecule is has that difference, because it's a different structure, that it stays intact when mixed with that benzyl peroxide. So that's how Galderma was able to mix those two products together, our retinoid and the benzyl peroxide. This is just showing you, this was a study that was done a while ago, but it's just breaking down the components of Epiduo, and this is showing you Gray line here is vehicle, and then you have adapalene and benzyl peroxide crisscrossing here, and then you have epiduo here. And as you can see, the two products, that benzyl peroxide and the adapalene, when applied together, are better than each of those products separately. Okay, and that's the point of that slide. So 
we're doing two in one, and if I can put one, a patient on one product a day, even better. Their compliance is going to be better. Okay, so um, we're going to start talking about the pivotal trial data for Epiduoforte. And again, I just wanted to remind people, it's very difficult to compare efficacy and acne studies. And the reason why is here. None of these study designs are the same. Okay, so if one product says it's 30% clear, almost clear, another says it's 50%, you can't really compare them, okay, because there's different scales. So at the bottom, the investigator assessment, you have the GAS scale and the IGA scale, different scales, similar, but they are different. Um, and also, you have to look at that study population. The Epiduoforte group, which is all the way over here, is the only one that enrolled 50% of the patients in their study as severe. All the others are predominantly moderate. Okay, so, so, and it's surprising that they would choose this strategy because I never would think about putting a patient on one product for severe acne. Okay, but they wanted to see how well it did. This is the scale that was used. So let's just go over this real quickly. So you have clear, almost clear, mild, moderate, and severe. Okay, so five grades. Okay, your IgA of zero, clear skin with no, with no inflammatory and non-inflammatory lesions. So when they're clear, they're clear. Okay, IgA one, um, almost clear, a few scattered comedones and a few small papules, mild, equally recog easily recognizable acne, less than half of the face involved in some comedones and some papules and pustules, IgA3, which is moderate, um, more than half of the face is involved, many comedones, papules, and pustules, one small nodule may be present, and then severe, the entire face is covered. Um, but as you can see, very subjective criteria, right? So in these studies, you really have to be trained in order to grade these patients. Now, why do we have these arrows above it and below it? So the blue are our moderate subjects. And in this pivotal trial, the patients had to be clear or almost clear with a two-grade improvement to be viewed as a, um, as a clinical success in this study. And our severe patients also had to be clear or almost clear with a two-grade improvement. But pointing this out, okay, so you take your moderate patient to almost clear, it's a two-grade improvement. They go to clear, it's a three-grade improvement. Your severe patients actually have to get a three-grade improvement or higher in order to be viewed as a treatment success. Okay, so it's a pretty high bar. And that was driven by the FDA. FDA has set this criteria up for all of these acne and rosacea studies now. So it's very stringent. This is the study designed for the pivotal trial. And as you can see, half the patients were moderate, half were severe. So 217 and 217, and then 69 received vehicle gel. Okay, our primary endpoints were success rate of an IgA of clear, almost clear, with a two-grade improvement. Also, change in inflammatory lesion count and change in non-inflammatory lesion, lesion count. And our secondary endpoints were that percent change in inflammatory and non-inflammatory lesions. And then, of course, safety was assessed. The epiduo arm of this was not there or powered to, to compare epiduoforte versus epiduogel for efficacy. It's only for safety. Um, and then when I, you look at the study design, I kind of look at it in a couple different ways. When you're looking at primary efficacy endpoints, clear, almost clear with the two-grade improvement, to me, is subjective member, uh, measurement. 
So it's kind of the global assessment in terms of what we do on a daily basis when we see that acne patient back and want to know how well they're doing. Okay, the change in inflammatory and non-inflammatory lesion counts, the nice thing about that is it includes our whole population. So we have those patients that do fantastic, that are clear, almost clear, but then you have a more general observation based on inflammatory and non-inflammatory lesion count reduction. Okay, so that allows us to capture the whole population of patients. This is showing you the patient demographics, and what I want to point out about this is up here, 98.5 plus or minus 39 lesions. That is a lot of lesions at baseline, and that's non-inflammatory and inflammatory. So really involved patients. I don't know the last time I've seen a patient with 100 lesions on their face for their acne, okay? Um, and then when you're looking down here at the bottom, about 50-50, moderate and severe. Okay, so really set that bar high in terms of putting patient on one topical once a day for 12 weeks and seeing how well they do. This is a two-grade improvement on the Epidua Forte gel, and this patient is moderate and almost clear at week 12, and I want to point out the lesion count reduction. So that patient had, at baseline, 38 um, inflammatory lesions and 71 non-inflammatory lesions, and at the end of 12 weeks, they went down to four and one, okay? So that patient went down, what, that's 109 lesions down to five. And remember, that's just one topical once a day, no oral medication. Okay, and a severe patient, this patient started with 192 lesions at baseline, and they went down to 29. Okay, this is an example of a treatment failure, but a clinical, uh, a treatment failure, but in my patient, that would be a success, in my office, that'd be a success, right? You took that patient down, how many lesions, you know? more than 100 lesions over 12 weeks with monotherapy. And this is just showing you the patients that achieved um, clear, almost clear, over 12 weeks. It became significant at eight weeks. And the blue is Epiduo Forte gel, and the green is vehicle gel. And so 34% of the patients were clear, almost clear, as monotherapy on Epiduo Forte over 12 weeks. OK, pretty, pretty great, right? Um, Sometimes when I do this talk, people say, why isn't it 50%? Okay, and the reason why is, if, again, they had to ha we started with a moderate to severe patient base, and they had to be clear, almost clear. Okay, so too great improvement wasn't enough. And then we're going to look at um, reduction or mean change from baseline. And as a reminder, these are where the patient started with inflammatory lesions, so about 40 of inflammatory lesions. And this is showing you the Epidoforte group and how many lesions were reduced over 12 weeks. And you can see at the end, there were minus about 28 lesions improved or out of 39. Okay, so only about 12 lesions left at the week at, of inflammatory lesions at the end of 12 weeks. And this is showing you the vehicle. Okay, so definitely performed much better than the vehicle. Okay, this is showing you reduction in inflammatory lesions, and this is the percentage reduction. And at the end of 12 weeks, it was 60, 
about 69% reduced to 12 weeks. So still great results, right? Again, remember, this is monotherapy. And this is the mean percent change in the non-inflammatory lesions. Okay, also about 68, 69% reduction over 12 weeks. These are the tolerability data, and this was based on patient questionnaires. And the most commonly, the most common complaints in terms of local tolerability, dryness, erythema, scaling, stinging, and burning, you can see all those curves kind of overlap. So the blue and the red, blue is Epiduoforte, the red is Epiduogel, and we're all familiar with Epiduogel. Very tolerable, but you can see there's a peak in all of these at about one week. There it is, there it is, there it is, there it is. Okay, so when I'm counseling my patients, I'm always keeping this in mind when I'm starting them on Epiduoforte. I get to get them through the first week or two. Okay, and this is where I consider doing alternate day dosing. Okay, so I'll say for the first week or two, let's just use it every other day until you get used to it. And then I'll say, well, why don't we try Monday through Friday? Take the weekends off, and if you're doing well Monday through Friday, then let's have you, let's have you do it every day. Okay, and gradually work that patient up. But remember, if you're going to increase tolerability of these acne products, um, you really have to go over basic skin care with them. So all these patients were on Cetaphil Gentle Cleanser and a moisturizer, and that's it. Okay, so when you're counseling that patient and getting started with them, regardless of the acne regimen, help yourself out and ask them what they're using at baseline and make recommendations in terms of making things more tolerable. If they're not tolerating it, it's usually because we didn't explain to them how to use it. We didn't express to them the, the exact quantity to use, don't use a face scrub, don't use an acne cleanser, don't do lots of different things. I, I actually have to sometimes talk patients into doing less, okay, because they feel like they're just being able to hold their acne at bay with what they're doing. So really counsel that patient and tell them how to use the products. And I'll tell you, since I have been doing this probably a decade already, really spending that extra five minutes going over all this, and we give a tear sheet that talks to them about things to do and not to do with their acne regimen, and my callbacks have basically gone down to zero. Okay, so it'll save you guys time later, okay, instead of having patients calling about um, irritation. Um, this is showing you, again, the AEs related to the topical, so topical AEs. And the Epiduoforte gel is a little higher, 7% and less than one with AEs. But if you start to look down at the percentages, most of that is related to skin, irrita skin irritation. And it makes sense, you're using triple the concentration of adapalene on the patient. Um, but remember, this patient is a moderate to severe patient. That patient doesn't mind being a little irritated. So really talk to them about moisturizing, and you'll get them through that first week or two. And then that irritation rate and actually, let me go back over this. You can see it drops down after, the, after about two weeks. It starts to continue to drop down over that 12 weeks. Now, they also did a meta-analysis of the most severe subtypes. And I was glad to see this data because in my mind, thinking kind of logically about it, my most severe patients are probably gonna do less well on monotherapy than my moderate patients. So I figured, well, if they're gonna tease out the data for severe, that severe patient is probably gonna do less well and the moderate patient's gonna do better, right? And I think that seems like a pretty logical um, assumption. But, so remember, this is the, the study. They dropped the moderate patients out and we only looked at the severe subset 
um, and looked at the exact same primary and secondary endpoints. And you can see, again, pointing this out, the, the most important thing is here, the patient started off with 114 plus or minus 41 lesions, so a lot of lesions, you know, 150 lesions. Um, also, what I like to see is our most severe patients typically have chest and back involvement, one or the other. Okay, so whenever I'm assessing my severe patients, I always ask them to lift up their shirt. Okay, because if, if I'm not treating their chest and back, you know, that patient, every time they go to the beach, they, they keep their T-shirt on, they feel very impacted by it. And oftentimes you see a lot of scarring in their chest and back. So if you're seeing that severe patient, ask them, do you have chest and back involvement? Um, I, I'm gonna kind of address how I like to treat trunk real briefly. You know, it's hard to treat the chest and the back Really, I try to think of formulations that are a little easier, like foams, washes. Um, in this study group, the Forte group, the patients were allowed to use, on the tr use it on the trunk. We don't have any efficacy data on that. But if you're going to use products like this on the trunk, I remind people that they tend to get more irritated on the chest and back than when they, when they use the same product on the face. And I think it might be a function of overdosing on it. They might put too much. Um, so I usually recommend, if they're going to use a leave-on topical on their chest and back, especially with benzyl peroxide, I have them dilute it with a little moisturizer, maybe just use it every other day until they come to see me after the first month. And also make sure that they wear a white t-shirt if they're going to put it on at bedtime, and that's when I would have them use it, because it'll ruin their clothes during the day if you don't. And um, this is showing you a three-grade improvement. So this was a, a clinical success in the study, or treatment success, excuse me. Um, and that patient went from 57 inflammatory lesions, 44 non-inflammatory lesions, down to 21 and 11. Okay, so really nice improvement. And this patient started off with 170 lesions at baseline, and that patient went down to 34. Okay, pretty impressive. I mean, for me in my office, that patient would be really happy. But again, this patient was not included in that 30% of treatment success, because that person was not clear, almost clear. Okay, so they had a two-grade improvement, but were a treatment failure in the study. And this is showing you the success rate, clear, almost clear. It's almost identical to the moderate to severe group. 32% were clear, almost clear at 12 weeks versus 11% in the vehicle group. Okay, and again, looking over here, inflammatory lesions, the baseline was 49, plus or minus 20 at baseline, and over the course of 12 weeks, that patient had, on average, uh, 37 lesions less. So pretty significant on that non-inflammatory, I mean, excuse me, inflammatory lesion. And this is the vehicle. Okay, so it's superior to the vehicle, more than double. Okay, mean percent change. In inflammatory lesions, 75% improvement over 12 weeks versus 33 for the vehicle group. So really significant. And again, this was surprising to me when I reviewed that data. I thought it would not be as effective. And again, I remind people, this is just one topical a day. Again, mean percent change in non-inflammatory lesions mirrored inflammatory lesions. So 70 72% reduction from baseline. And you can see that vehicle group was only about 31%. Um, this is showing you the tolerability in, 
for the severe subtype of patients. And again, it mirrored the moderate to severe group. It peaks at one week and then gradually reduces over about 12 weeks. These are the AEs for the severe subtypes. And you can see up here about 20% AEs and 15% in the epiduo group. But I want to point out, most of those AEs were infections that are probably not related to the treatment. Um, when you look below that, very similar. 5.7 in the epiduo forte group and 5.4% in the regular epiduo group. So why is that? We don't know. I kind of think, well, maybe our most severe subtype patients are just oilier in general, maybe able to tolerate both equally as well. Okay, but we don't know. But it's very similar when you tease out that moderate group. Um, this is a patient self-assessment. So we asked that patient, what's your degree of improvement and can you grade it for us? And this is a slow build slide. So worse is in orange, no change is in blue, minimal is in green, purple is moderate improvement, uh, moderately improved, 50.5% 50, 50, um, showed marked improvement in the Epidio Forte group, and then that orange is complete improvement. So 94% of patients in the Epidio Forte group felt that they were complete, marked, or moderately improved, whereas only about 39% about in the vehicle group. Okay, another study patient, and this is a pretty classic female patient. This patient's 22. But I think we're all used to seeing that chin perioral involvement along the mandible for our adult female patients. And that's kind of a classic patient. And you can see her, she really went down in her lesions. She went down to five from over 100 at baseline. Okay, and another study patient, the three grade improvement um, from severe to almost clear. Again, pretty impressive. Again, over 100 lesions at baseline down to about 13 lesions at the end of the 12 weeks. Okay, so in summary, so epidio forte, in our severe patients, 32% were clear, almost clear over 12 weeks versus 12% in the vehicle control group, met a high standard of efficacy in that 100% of the patients were moderate and severe, 50-50, okay? No other, um, current study out there has such a high proportion of severe patients in their study. And tolerability, very tolerable, comparable to epiduo gel. And then kind of looking at these orange prompts here at the bottom, daily cleaning with mild cleanser, moisturize at least once a day, avoid exposure to skin. You know, I could spend a whole hour just talking about that. But kind of briefly, I usually recommend a, regardless of how oily the patient is, a mild, um, non-soap cleanser. So we're talking about things that are um, cream or lotion-based cleansers because it's not stripping the normal oil off the skin. So I have them do that morning and night. There's no scrubs, no toners, no exfoliants, okay? If you add that to the equation, they're gonna, say, they're gonna come back to see you in a month and say, I don't know why you put this on this medication. My face is so irritated and peely, okay? Because they're stripping their stratum corneum by doing that. They're stripping oil off their skin. Um, so. They should moisturize either before or after they put their topical, and I'll squeeze out in my palm 
the amount that they should use of that product. And with Epiduo Forte, it's a pea-sized amount. So, and then they dot it across their face and moisturize on top, and they do need to moisturize. Sometimes patients will think this, there's a moisturizer built in, but there isn't. So I think that's the biggest thing that patients forget is moisturizing. And also, regardless of skin color, my darker skin types will say, well, I don't need to use a sunblock. I've never used a sunscreen. If they have PIH, remember that PIH is, uh, is gonna get worse with sun exposure. So make sure you counsel all of your acne patients to use that sunblock, because at the minimum, it's stripping their stratum corneum, and ultraviolet's gonna penetrate more easily into the skin. Okay, so making sure you go over all these steps when you start that patient on their, on their acne topical. Okay, and this is the important safety data. Um, I'm just gonna show the slides. Um, since we covered most of this. Okay. Um, are we going to be taking a few questions? That's the bulk of my talk. Okay, so um, let's go over a few of these. I know it's almost one o'clock, so I'll take a couple. So how do you manage patients with acne in the setting of atopic dermatitis on the face? So it just depends. If I just had a patient like this this week, new patient, she came in with facial dermatitis and acne. Number one, treat the atopic dermatitis first. Make sure it's under control. If you put them, try to do both at the same time, that patient will be irritated the whole time you're treating them and broken out. So number one, treat their atopic dermatitis. And if they have facial involvement, you really have to be careful about what products you put on because remember, a topical steroid is gonna break their acne out. Okay, so this is when I might use Eladel um, on their face to try to calm them down and maybe one of the barrier repair creams to just kind of calm them down. And I would think about really selecting something that's non-irritating for that patient. Um, so you may want to start them very slowly, maybe just start them on a, a single retinoid initially, have them use it just two or three times a week and gradually work up. If, it's, if you find something that's flaring their atopic dermatitis, might have to back off and rethink it and use something else, something a little bit less irritating. Okay, um, what are your favorite peels for acne scars? Cereal peels? Okay, so I don't think any peels work on acne scarring, unless you're doing a deep peel, which I typically don't do, so that's like a phenol peel. Um, so you wanna treat them before they have acne scarring, and I usually do, probably, if we're gonna talk about peels, I will recommend salicylic acid peels, which I think are the best, because remember, salicylic's anti-inflammatory. It's a large particle size. It kind of settles into that pore, into that pilospaceous unit, so hopefully it's gonna bring some inflammation down, as well as being comedolytic. Um, if they're not sure they wanna do salicylic, um, or if you're doing large body areas, remember you have to be careful um, for sal salicylate toxicity if you're gonna peel their chest or back. That's a large body surface area, so then I'd probably switch them to glycolic acid. Um, what have you found that works best for the dryness and redness when a patient starts Epidua Forte? Um, number one, um, gentle cleanser. And I always go back to, to Cetaphil Gentle Cleanser because that is what was used in the studies. And um, Cetaphil Moisturizer, again, that is what is used in the acne studies. And we see how low the irritation rate is with those products, um, um, using those in conjunction with, with the Epidua Forte. So that's what I would recommend. Okay, I think that's it, but thank you so much for attending. I appreciate it. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.